The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, February 16th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guests, Dr. Rosario Trifoletti and Lynn Johnson. Our topic, the many faces of pandas, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with streptococcal infections. Dr. Trifoletti was the Chief of Child Neurology at University of Medicine and Dentistry, New Jersey, Newark, a staff neurologist at Morristown and Overlook Hospitals and is now in private practice. He is the author of over 80 scientific papers, mostly on basic and clinical child neurology. Lynn Johnson's daughter, Lauren, began sneezing virtually incessantly, an atypical presentation of pandas. Lynn will describe her journey with Lauren in finding an accurate medical diagnosis and effective care. Dr. Trifoletti, Lynn, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Terry. Thank you very much. Lynn, let's begin with your reminding listeners what PANDAS is. Well, the definition of PANDAS, which we've heard quite frequently lately, is um, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with streptococcus in general. All right. And Dr. Trifoletti, how can an infectious agent create a neuropsychiatric syndrome? And do we have precedent for infectious agents being the culprit when kids suddenly develop seemingly bizarre behavioral symptoms. Yes, in fact, there's a, uh, for the, in the case of pandas, there's a, a very closely related precedent uh, that's uh, known as uh, Sydenham's chorea, sometimes known as St. Vitus's dance. Uh, that's been known for uh, many, many years. In fact, the, the name Sydenham comes from a, an English doctor, Thomas Sydenham, the 1970, in the 1700s that described it, actually. So it's been probably known since antiquity as part of a uh, disease we call rheumatic fever. Uh, and, and, and in the, in the 20th century, the early 20th century, it was realized that uh, uh, that was related to a an infection by um, what's called Group A strep, or the common uh, strep bacteria that causes strep throat. Um, in uh, mo- many uh, many of us, and probably uh, many people in the audience, have had strep throat, but very few of us have had the neurological complications associated with it. And in the case of Sydenham's chorea, it's a sudden onset of uh, a uh, dancing-like uh, wiggly movement. In fact, the word Korea in Greek means dance, so it's, it's as if the child uh, has an involuntary um, dance-like movement uh, um, uh, and can be associated sometimes with uh, tics and OCD as well. Um, so that is a, was a well-established uh, precedent uh, uh, for uh, the pandas-like illnesses. So it sounds like this connection between movement disorders and an infectious agent was first established around the 17th century from what you said. And 
Do patients with Sydenham's chorea have anti-streptococcal antibodies in their blood? Uh, yes, they do. Uh, they, uh, uh, they they sometimes uh, you, it has to do with the timing of the infection because this is a post-infectious condition. So uh, usually you, a typical story is you have a child that has a, or an adult that has a strep throat, uh, and uh, some four to six weeks later the uh, uh, the uh, the child will uh, but will be noted to have uh, a um, uh, this movement disorder come on. Um, so. Um, uh, that uh, that is something that um, um, uh, that um, um, uh, that is well known. Um, so, what are the parallels between uh, Sydenham's chorea and OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder? Uh, yeah, uh, in, in Sydenham's chorea, you have the uh, the movement disorder, uh, but a, a a fair number of patients, um, perhaps up to fifty uh, percent, while they have this movement disorder. Do meet uh, psychiatric criteria for a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessive compulsive disorder is sort of a, a an additional feature that many patients with Sydenham's chorea have. In fact, it was uh, uh, Dr. Susan Suedo's early studies at the National Institute of Mental Health that, uh, in fact, uh, uh, um, uh, for, she first focused on patients with Sydenham's chorea uh, and noted that many of these patients actually had OCD. And this was actually a important starting point for her uh, studies on, on PANDAS. So what became the formal criteria for making a PANDAS diagnosis? Uh, well, initially, uh, the, uh, the criteria were, um, uh, were rather rigidly set out by Dr. Suedo, and that's very common when you're de- – because she described a new illness that hadn't been described before, and this was initially um, uh, conceived of in the early 1990s and, and first published in 1996. Uh, but the, the criteria there were uh, very specific ones. It had to be a child between ages 3 and 11 uh, with a sudden onset of uh, tics and or OCD uh, in uh, close temporal uh, correlation to a documented streptococcal infection, whether that was documented by a uh, throat culture, whether it was documented by uh, titers. But in some way you uh, had a, uh, independent evidence of a streptococcal infection. Uh, and um, and uh, the uh, other criteria also, you know, there were other uh, non-obligate criteria, including uh, the presence of, uh, in some patients, of mild, uh, what, what are called chorea-form signs, actually signs that are often seen in patients with Sydenham's chorea. Um, but uh, those are the, uh, the rigid criteria, and it turns out that, um, uh, which is a very good idea when you're defining a new disease so that you can talk to other doctors about it and you can get the most characteristic cases, just as, it, you know, when we talk about autism, the, uh, the child that's uh, you know, perfectly well until uh, 15 to 18 months of age and then has a sudden uh, or a rather dramatic language regression and social regression. We know that, uh, you know, that uh, is a characteristic uh, child with uh, with. Uh, Autistic spectrum disorder. That would be the textbook case, but there are many children that are a variant of that that have different, uh, different. Uh, they may, their onset may be earlier or later than a typical time, or or there may be other features associated. The same is true with pandas. That all the suedo criteria, three to eleven, and the sudden onset of tics and OCD uh, and um, other neurological signs uh, can all be uh, broken. But when you just Describing the first cases uh, and the first cases that were in the literature, 
um, uh, the most the uh, sort of the most characteristic cases are described. So that's led to a little confusion because, uh, and I think there is a movement about to uh, sort of revise these criteria now uh, to make them a little bit more general and, in a sense, make pandas and, and I think it really is a spectrum disorder that, that there's a range of things. And the first definition by Sueda would have been the most uh, the most obvious or severe cases on the spectrum, and the um, and as we know, there are unusual cases such as as, as Lauren's uh, that uh, also fit within that within that spectrum. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, what happened with Lauren. Um, Lynn, can you tell us the the story of how Lauren first presented the uh, how it was atypical, the severity, and how the story gained momentum? Well, with Lauren, it was interesting because both of my daughters, who are less than two years apart, presented around the end of October of last year with what I would call your typical upper respiratory. We um, we had no indication that there was strep. There was um, no normal signs, you know, the red throat, the sore throat that people typically associate with, with strep throat. So even though as the good mother, you know, we went straight to the doctor um, because there was a lot of different strains going around their school at the time, everything from upper respiratory strep throat to um, H1N1, you know, we wanted to make sure that we weren't looking at something more serious and we were, you know, easily comforted that it was probably just a virus. Um, even though we made three visits to the doctor's office in that same week. Um, my younger daughter got over her, seemed to get over um, her illness, but Lauren did not. She had severe um, productive sneezing um, with a cold, and then it evolved about eight days later into um, a very repetitive sneeze. And, and soon after that, it went from what I would call productive sneeze, still looking like a real sneeze, into more of a tick-like sneeze. But it, it, like I said, it increased to the point where she was doing this more than 20,000 times a day and not stopping with the exception of deep sleep. I mean, when a child does that overnight, and in our case it was on Halloween night, the next morning she went into this repetitive sneezing, um, every red flag as a parent, as a mother, goes off in your head. This is not normal. A child does not go from having a cold to sneezing 20,000 plus times a day nonstop. Right. So, Dr. Tripoletti, what do you think was going on here? I, I've heard of pandas as being considered uh, an autoimmune disorder, and, of course, that's in the, the name of pandas. Does this, does, what was happening to Lauren have anything to do with those anti-streptococcal antibodies and molecular mimicry and, and the brain attacking itself? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Lauren, in Lauren's case, you know, uh, it was, uh, you know, obviously um, just uh, her, her story was uh, just uh, a severe uh, repetitive sneezing. And uh, somewhat amazingly, you know, we all sne- have sneezed many times in our lives, and it's just uh, considered to be a normal uh, physiological function when it uh, happens to clear your airway. But amazingly, almost very, very little is known about actual sneezing. You actually... Uh, Look up medical literature on sneezing. It's relatively little known about it. Um, so in her case, there was very little to go on. Very little precedent of someone that had sneezed uh, as uh, as incessantly as she had. And the clue with uh, with her, uh, which uh, and uh, I actually heard about this story uh, because I guess it had uh, had made somewhat of uh, fame for itself on the internet through uh, through YouTube and other such places, video uh, formats. Actually, my children uh, saw it on there, and I. I saw it that way. Um, uh, they're teenagers, and they, they go on YouTube a lot, and they saw this. And 
And I said, boy, that's, as soon as I saw Lauren, I said, that, I think that's a tick. And uh, the sudden onset made me think right away of, of the possibility of, of pandas and also the fact that Lauren's symptoms uh, disappeared uh, in sleep. So uh, it, um, it, it, it made us think immediately of that as, as, a, as a potential etiology uh, for that. Um, and um, the way it theoretically works, and it's a little bit complicated with pandas, it's a, with Sydenham's chorea, it's direct molecular mimicry. In other words, the, uh, you have the strep bacteria that has unusual antigens on its surface or surface proteins, and uh, your immune system makes antibodies with those, and somehow um, those antibodies against proteins, which are called the M, uh, various M proteins of streptococcus, uh, well-known proteins, have uh, been studied for many years, Actually, cross-react with proteins in the brain. It's as if you have uh, you have a um, a lock uh, and you've made a key for that lock, and somehow this key serendipitously opens another lock, which has nothing to do with it. And that's sort of what's going on there. And uh, but in pandas, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not direct molecular mimicry, but it's some of the same um, circuitry or, or, or neurochemical systems are involved uh, in pandas as in Sydenham's chorea. But it's not a direct uh, molecular effect. Uh, we know that now because although strep is the most common cause of the panda syndrome, we know now there are other uh, closely uh, other organ infectious agents that can pretty much produce the same type of syndrome. And in fact, Dr. Suedo recognized that very early on. Her first paper was not called pandas, but it was called pitans, P-I-T-A-N-D-S, which actually stands for uh, uh, pediatric uh, infection. Uh, 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 Actually, I don't even recall the acronym because it isn't used that much anymore, uh, Pitans, but it has to do uh, with the fact that other agents other than Streptococcus can uh, can produce this uh, syndrome. So that was recognized early on. So we don't know exactly the, the, what's going on in Lauren's brain, but somehow the same areas of the brain called the basal ganglia are being, um, are being irritated uh, uh, in her condition. Um, and uh, it's that uh, uh, irritation of the basal ganglia that leads to uh, repetitive stereotypic behavior, in her case, the, uh, the, the sneeze-type behavior. Now, why is it that some kids will be affected by this and some kids won't when they have a strep throat, for example? Uh, that, that's difficult to tell. Um, 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 it may have to do with... Uh, 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 probably has to do with host factors to some extent uh, because we find that in, in many children that do develop pandas, there is a strong family history of unusual complications of streptococcal infection. So, for example, there may be a strong history of repeated strep throat, adults that continue to have strep throat, uh, which is not that common, tonsillectomies in, in, in adulthood, uh, people in the family that have rheumatic fever, or, or multiple episodes of scarlet fever or unusual complications with flesh-eating strep bacteria uh, and other things. So uh, in part it has to do with uh, as yet not clearly defined immune factors, but also may have to do with strains of strep because we've had uh, reports of, of uh, epidemics or clusters of children um, un uh, um, genetically unrelated in different families that uh, in the same geographic neighborhood that have had this problem. So. It probably is a combination of uh, of uh, a, a, a genetically predisposed host uh, encountering a particularly uh, 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 virulent bug. Oh, interesting. Let's pick up with that when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on The Voice America Business Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Rosario Trifoletti and Lynn Johnson talking about PANDAS, which stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcal Infection. And the other acronym to which Dr. Trifoletti referred, PATAND, is Pediatric Infection-Triggered Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders. And before the break, Dr. Trifoletti, you had uh, alluded to different strains. Can we pick up with that, please? Uh, yeah, yeah, the... Um uh, there are uh, the are. It's been known that the, uh, there are certain types of streptococcus that are defined by uh, proteins on their surface um, that are called M proteins. Uh, uh, have different uh, virulence properties. Um, one important virulence uh, virulence means the uh, uh, the uh, ability to cause infection or to to cause uh, illness. Uh, um, in fact, there. Uh, Streptococcus, now that we uh, know the entire genome of streptococcus, there are known to be many, many virulence factors. Well, the M proteins are the best understood. Uh, there are uh, important, uh, so they in some extent determine the severity, much like you hear about H1N1. The H1 refers to uh, a hemagglutinin and N, something called a neuraminidase. Those are two uh, uh, proteins on, on, uh, in the influenza virus that, uh, that are virulence factors. So, uh, but unlike influenza, we, and uh, we don't normally type uh, strep. So when you get a strep throat, we don't know exactly what the M type is. That's because um, generally it's easy to treat with antibiotics. We don't, uh, and uh, there rarely is complications. But I think that's something that in, in, in the not too distant future we ought to do in the pandas population to try to find out if there are specific M protein types that are associated with pandas. Um, 
Now, the other thing about uh, that's very important about strep is that it has the uh, virulence factors that permit it to live intracellularly in cells so that it can actually get into cells uh, and uh, evade the immune system and not be readily cleared, but yet show its antigenic base to the immune system so that the immune uh, response uh, continues but doesn't clear the infection. And that produces something that's called a strep carrier state, uh, where you actually keep the uh, streptococcus in your body um, and shed it intermittently and can pass it on to other people, mm. and yet you don't show the inflammation. Uh, and there are probably one of the variations of PANDAS is uh, something called chronic PANDAS, where kids actually have this, uh, instead of having these acute onset of symptoms, have a more steady uh, uh, set of symptoms, and they continue uh, continue on for years while they continue on with this uh, chronic streptococcal infection. You have to clear that with special antibiotics that are not normally used to treat the acute strep throat. Yeah, I know uh, of children who would be asymptomatic, but... Uh, their parents would have them cultured on the basis of exposure to other children. They would come back with a plus four, you know, on their rapid strep test or, uh, excuse me, the culture, but they'd be asymptomatic. Right. In fact, it's estimated that probably about 20% of the general population, if you just went and cultured everybody on the street, that about 20% of people are actually strep carriers without any symptom at all. So uh, it makes, uh, you know, uh, dealing with strep, in, in, you, know, in, in the, you know, if you have a child that's predisposed to tannis uh, and they're going to go to school, they're going to be other, uh, or uh, they're going to be other children and adults they're going to be exposed to uh, that have uh, active, you know, that are actively shedding strep and don't even know it. It was really interesting because the pediatrician's uh, office would say that um, the kids who were asymptomatic, you know, weren't contagious, even if they had a plus four. And then there were different schools of thought about, well, if they're asymptomatic, you don't have to use antibiotics. And then another doctor in the office would say something like, if there's a bug, I want to kill it, kill it, kill it. So what do you do? Well, I mean, I think, uh, well, I, it, it's, it's tough because it's, it's sometimes very difficult to uh, to sterilize a household uh, because even, uh, I mean, uh, there are even pets and, and uh, that have been implicated in this, and you can really uh, uh, go spend a good deal of your life uh, trying to uh, sterilize your house from strep. And then after all that's done, your child just goes to school and gets it from a friend. So really the only practical way of dealing with that is uh, to... Uh, uh, unless uh, you have uh, symptomatic uh, family members, and I, we're going to hear a little bit about this, I think, from, from Mrs. Johnson, because they had that experience in their family with uh, many uh, uh, unexpected strep infections, that um, um, unless you have really the entire family exposed or, or a lot of family members, sometimes you're dealing with uh, uh, families with 10 children or something like that, it's probably not too practical to do that. Uh, so the lowdown is the child has to be on to have to have the protection or prophylactic antibiotics uh, realistically. Um, if uh, if that's what you're trying to do is to prevent uh, reinfection. So Lynn, tell us what happened in your family. The contrast between uh, Lauren and Audrey. The presentations. Well, like I said, we you know digging through all of my children's medical history recently. You know we have uncovered some pretty significant clues um, going all the way back to the um, very end of 2006 where there was a strep infection. Um, Audrey was asymptomatic, my younger daughter. Um, I took all three of my children at the time that were, um, you know, my son was 14 and Lauren being six years younger than, than that and Audrey being eight, even eight years younger than that, all go to the pediatrician. My two older children are 
very symptomatic for strep. My youngest daughter, Audrey, is not. She's the only one that tests tests positive on a rapid throat culture. The doctor tests all the children. Uh, My two older test negative. She decides to treat only the younger child. Um, Audrey at that time is presenting not only with with strep symptoms but with um, full body rash, which you often see with a strep infection. The next day, um, I called the doctor's office. Um, Lauren's presenting with the same rash and high fever, but never tested positive on the throat, even the 72-hour culture. So the doctor calls in your typical amoxicillin for, you know, two days, three days while the 72-hour culture is growing. But once the 72-hour culture comes back negative, they tell you to discontinue the antibiotics. Um, it wasn't even within a week after that my oldest son started um I guess displaying what you call like a uh, Dr. Trifoletti will describe like the exorcist type um, pandas manifestation where um, you're to the point where you actually seek out psychiatric evaluations. We actually had that done um, within two weeks of that strep onset and continued to have um, issues with with our older son, which we believe now um, could be associated with pandas. Um, We're not sure, like I said, if that's what we've been dealing with for the last three years. Audrey manifests somewhat differently over the last three years. She's had your typical, what I call OCD presentation, um, pretty severe anxiety, fears, you know, where she used to be able to sleep over at friend's house, could not make it through the night, had extreme weather fears, body imaging, um, just your, like I said, typical OCD. And as parents, we dismiss that as, you know, it's, you know, it's normal, or we adjust it, or it's developmental. Our doctors tell us it's normal. I mean, nobody associates something like that with a strep infection. They just don't put the, the two together. And even in Lauren's case, after she started sneezing most recently 20,000 times a day, she was one of the 37% of the children out there that never even get a rise in her ASO titers when we do blood tests. What's the ASO titers is what they check. It's a blood test they check to see if your body's reacting to the strep virus. Um, Lauren never got a rise. She's it was, she's been tested, you know, four times in the last few months. Never had a, had a rise. Her sister and the rest of our family all tested positive with ASO titers at the time Lauren presented with this nonstop sneezing tick. And her younger sister, Audrey, after we put her on high-dose antibiotics even for six weeks most recently, when we went to retest her titers to make sure that they were back to a normal range, they were actually um, over the 800 range because Audrey had been exposed to strep again just in the last few weeks. So it's very difficult. We had to treat our whole family um, even the dog, <laughs> um, to try to eradicate the strep in a house, like Dr. Trefletti said, cleaning every surface, disinfecting. You're never going to not be exposed. Lauren will probably be on prophylactic antibiotics, possibly Audrey, too, for great lengths of time once we get her hopefully 100% better. But you're going to continuously have exposure. You can't avoid it. You can't live in a bubble. You just have to take precautions. So is pandas easy to diagnose in the absence of titers? How do we know what Lauren had is pandas? I assume she's getting better, and we can tell that way because the treatment for pandas is helping her get better. Uh, well, it's a, it, it makes it very tricky, and this is, uh, you know, and it's a tricky. It, it, I think uh, when doctors see the straightforward cases of the sudden onset associated with high titers uh, um, and the sudden response to antibiotics, that's pretty straightforward, and they can 
accept that as within the standard spectrum, but it's when you have the little twists, these variations, the uh, non-black and white situations that make it tough. In her case, uh, uh, Lauren had the symptoms, and we didn't really have uh, significantly elevated titers. But uh, there are other tests that um, have now been developed. They're still in a research stage. There are these uh, tests that are done by Dr. Madeline Cunningham in Oklahoma City that are, uh, are measuring actual antibodies to brain proteins that mm-hmm. are thought to be involved in PANDAS. It's called, one in particular is called CAM kinase 2, um, which uh, were actually measured in Lauren and can discriminate between uh, plain uh, ticks or, uh, or idiopathic ticks or OCD and uh, infectious-related, PANDAS-related OCD, and in fact also can discriminate between those in Sydenham's Korea as well based on the level of this uh, of uh, this anti-CAM kinase 2 titer that she measures. Uh, and, in fact, they were elevated in, in Lauren. That was a, an important clue uh, in the puzzle that, that in fact, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was PANDAS. Uh, and um, uh, the other, uh, um, also, uh, we also know that there, uh, by looking at other kids, that there are children that simply don't make antibodies uh, following a, a documented streptococcal infection. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's probably about... 20 to 30 percent of people, uh, they have uh, culture-documented strep throats and their titers don't rise. And it could be that that's reflecting a, a, a selective weakness of the immune system to responding to uh, streptococcal infections. And there is, in fact, evidence of that um, by looking at patients, for example, that have gotten the Prevnar anti-pneumococcal vaccine, many patients with PANDAS selectively don't take that vaccine. They uh, don't develop antibodies like they should suggesting that their uh, their immune system is selectively weakened uh, to dealing with strep and we that's what we're theorizing with Lauren that she uh, she's the only one in her family that uh, doesn't uh, show the antibodies appropriately wow what a great point all right um, we'll pick up with this when we come back from break thank you to our sponsor Enzymedica we'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Lynn Johnson and Dr. Rosario Trifoletti talking about pandas. And uh, before the break, Dr. Trifoletti, you had alluded to the the fact that there were um, some of these cases caused by one thing and some the ticks were not caused by it. So why is etiology important to treatment? Well, uh, I'll give an example. One, uh, we know now another important trigger of uh, the the pandas-like syndrome or the sudden uh, appearance of... uh, of uh, uh, or uh, of ticks and OCD in a child uh, is uh, mycoplasma, which is another type of bacteria. Um, it's an unusual type of bacteria, and maybe some of you have heard of it because it's the most common cause of walking pneumonia. That is like a, a situation where you have a pretty bad, uh, a pretty bad cough or uh, or uh, respiratory condition, and you have a chest X-ray, which looks a lot worse than you look, and so it's. You have clinical, you have uh, radiological evidence of pneumonia, but not so bad clinically. You're walking around instead of sitting in a hospital ward. Uh, so mycoplasma is well known. A lot of us have actually had it. But once again, in some uh, predisposed children, immunologically predisposed children, they, dis- they develop this panda syndrome. So one of the things we test for now routinely in kids that uh, come with suspected pandas is also for mycoplasma because uh, it can mimic this uh, almost uh, identically. Uh, and so sometimes they don't show the rise in the streptococcal titers because they don't have a streptococcal infection. It's, in fact, the mycoplasma. And uh, if we can distinguish between the two, that's very important because uh, the treatment for, uh, uh, in, in some cases for the uh, streptococcal infection can be uh, certain types of penicillins like augmentin that, uh, that, uh, that was used, for example, in, in Beth Maloney's child, uh, Saving Sammy, uh, um, uh, Sammy in the Saving Sammy book, uh, augmentin was used there to treat his strep. Well, augmentin and encephalosporins don't work at all in mycoplasma because mycoplasma bacteria lack a cell wall, and, and uh, the penicillins and cephalosporins work by, uh, entirely by inhibiting cell wall synthesis. So the mycoplasma is completely immune to those bacteria, uh, to those antibiotics, and you have to use Zithromax and clindamycin in that case. So, uh, it, you know, really, uh, my initial approach to these patients is always to try to, to determine as best as you can uh, what the triggering agent might be. 
and once that's identified, that will determine what the best course of, uh, of treatment would be. Wow. I, that just emphasizes uh, the importance of the, the medical arts, not just throwing something at the person. Um, we know that the children manifest, uh, their behaviors manifest at times in a way that someone might be just prone to throw an SSRI at them, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor at them. And how do you feel about that when this is real, really well, a biological syndrome? Well, really, I think there's like three levels to the to uh, pandas. Uh, in, in the sense, it, it, the root problem, I think, in, in in you know, in the bona fide cases, is that it, it, it's an infectious disease uh, and, and a response to an infectious disease. So you can deal at the level, the the root level is dealing with the infection. Uh, sometimes you have a situation you can't identify what the infection is. You, you uh, it behaves as if it's an infectious disease, and it may even respond beautifully to antibiotics. I've treated something infectious, but I don't know what it was. Uh, as we get smarter, we'll be able to expand that list from mycoplasma to other things, and uh, we'll be able to identify them. But as of right now, there are many cases in which we don't know what the infectious thing was. Then the next level you could deal with the thing uh, uh, is at the level of the immune system itself. You can non-specifically immunosuppress patients, like with steroids or IVIG, plasmapheresis, other treatments that are dealing at that level. And as you move up to less and less specific treatments, the um, and they work on uh, more people, but they have more side effects because you're not, and you're, and you're also not dealing with the root cause. So after you suppress the immune system, the strep is still there, uh, and you're still predisposed to infection too. And the final way you can deal with it, and uh, this will work pretty much on a lot of sometimes uh, on more people, but it's uh, the least uh, specific, and uh, uh, and it will work on patients that don't have any infectious or immune etiology at all. Is the to treat the neurochemical imbalance that's induced by this immune uh, thing. And that's where the SSRIs come in to uh, to try to restore that balance. Now, in severe cases of, pa- of pandas, and uh, this, uh, for example, I mentioned this exorcist syndrome, where it is really the most uh, severe form of, uh, of a pandas-like illness, um, uh, there the immune drive is so strong that uh, the... Uh, the uh, medical, the uh, psychopharmacological agents don't do anything to those patients. Uh, so, um, uh, but there are some. But the, you know, in defense of the those agents, is that they are have been used for a long time, and and, and we understand their side effects uh, fairly well in patient in, in in some of these children. But also, and also, uh, they can uh, provide in certain cases. Some of these medicines can work fairly quickly. So, if you have a crisis situation, and there have been situations where you have a child with severe OCD that starts hallucinating and uh, and you know jumping off roofs and things like that, where they really belong in a psychiatric hospital. Sometimes the only thing you can do quickly uh, to restore the situation while you're trying to figure out what's going on medically is is to use those medications. But uh, and you know so they they're uh, the whole point of trying to find the medical cause of this is to try to use, uh, if possible, antibiotics uh, or at most uh, mild immunosuppressive treatments to spare the children from uh, from SSRIs and drugs like Risperdal um, uh, in their treatment. Um, uh, but you know, as I say, it's. Um, you know, and when we see a child with pandas that's already on on Risperdal, one of the things we try to do, for example, is to try to come up with a plan to get them off those medications. Now, Lynn, um, Dr. Trifoletti had mentioned uh, steroids in there um, some some place, and I think that you had a good experience with that with Lauren. Yeah, we did. Well, the, like he was saying, you know, not that any doctor is being negligent, but, you know, the first thing a lot of doctors do, because they they've never heard of pandas, they don't know what pandas is, and they see a child 
um, with the manifestation typical, even like with Lauren, you know, sneezing nonstop, a sneezing tick, or even as extreme as an exorcist type manifestation, you know, it's, 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 the number one logical thing for them to do is start treating with psychotropic medications. Even in Lauren's case, that was the first medication, one of the first prescribed to us was Risperdal. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's really important that you're looking at these, at the, these children and you're making a clinical diagnosis. You're looking at all the factors. You're looking at the history. You're looking at the whole family. You're trying to make a connection. So it's, you're not so quick or easy to jump to um, a psychiatric conclusion of just OCD or Tourette's, um, you know, to rule those things out. And one of those ways to do that is by clinic, by clinically diagnosing them is, you know, treating with antibiotics. Even if you don't get a rise in the ASO titers, it's relatively low risk to see if there's a change. In Lauren's case, she was on azithromycin. She started at 250 milligrams a day. Um, at day six, we increased that to 500 milligrams a day, and that same day we increased her to 500 milligrams a day, her sneezing reduced from up to 25 times a minute in half. I mean, she went from 25 times a minute to 10 times a minute and even a little less than. No long pauses, but no other variables. You know, she had been on many, many different medications, so you you can't count that this is a placebo effect, it, you know, and it was with the increase to the right amount. So like Dr. Trifoletti said earlier, you know, it's not only finding the right antibiotic that works for these children, but the right dosage that works for them. And, and if you're careful with your variables you introduce, not having too many at play at once, you see how that works. In our case, it worked very well. Soon after that, we introduced the five-day steroid burst, which that was over Thanksgiving weekend, we saw our first pauses in weeks. You know, Lauren would go three to four minutes in between sneezes. That might not sound like a very long period of time for some people, but if you talk about a girl who just a few weeks prior couldn't even barely take a breath in between a sneezing tick and was having a three to four minute pause, it was next to a small miracle for us. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that. And uh, you know, a lot of things that you say, Lynn, um, about the journey that you went through remind me of what people uh, in the autism community go through. And Dr. Tripoletti, what's the crossover here? How many children with autism have symptoms attributable to pandas? How many children just have autism? How many children just have pandas? Oh, that's a tough one. Boy, we'd like to know the answer to that question, wouldn't we? But, uh, but I, I, I really think um, the, the uh, one uh, thing about pandas is that... Um, it, it does, uh, particularly OCD uh, and the, stereo- the stereotypies or stimming you see in, uh, in autistic patients uh, are very similar. They're treated with some of the same uh, medications. Um, and I think one situation that I, I pay, uh, parents with autism ought to look out for is that they notice that uh, their child's uh, behavioral profile suddenly worsens. I mean, we know that uh, there is, a, 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 in many patients with autism, a regression that occurs. And that, but that usually typically recurs before age two. In some patients, that are, you know, late on, later onset, it can occur after age two. But you usually don't have a child that is uh, going along and then all of a sudden at age six then starts regressing again. If you see all of a, a sudden onset of, uh, of those symptoms in a child with autism, I think one of the things you have to think about is pandas because we, we know, I, I know from experience that, uh, if you have a child that has mild, I, I've had children who have previously been diagnosed with a mild PDD, Asperger's type disorder, 
who then become uh, look a lot more like a severe autistic case uh, uh, with pandas, and amazingly, they'll respond to antibiotics, which is uh, very uh, striking. And there have been, you know, reports. Uh, if you look in the literature, there are reports uh, of occasional patients with autism uh, having remarkable improvements with corticosteroids. Uh, uh, and I wonder if those are in fact uh, in, uh, in part. Um, Pandas patients. You know, obviously the immune system has been a, a big, uh, a big focus on the uh, theory of how, uh, of, of what's going on in autism, and uh, some of the same funny. Uh, you see this also in pandas patients that uh, once their immune system is primed, uh, they can then receive a uh, vaccine of any type. Uh, uh, for example, uh, recently with these H1N1 vaccines, I've had a number of patients who've gotten that vaccine. Uh, who are known to have pandas who had a very marked regression within a few weeks of that, uh, and, and nothing else was going on, uh, no, no newly acquired infections. So uh, there's, a, there's these very curious overlaps between uh, autism and pandas, and uh, one of the hopes is that uh, it seems that pandas, in terms of understanding it as a medically, might be a little bit further ahead than autism, because autism is a very complicated illness with many, many genes involved and uh, may not be one simple answer to what caused it. But uh, if we get a clue from pandas, that might really uh, help uh, us, uh, at least with some uh, aspects of autism. And, and certainly uh, nobody has, for example, done the Cunningham tests on patients with autism, and that certainly would be something that I think would be... Uh, would be worth screening for uh, if there might be a uh, if that test is helpful then we might be able to actually uh, determine uh, quite early on in the game whether a child is uh, is uh, it's likely that they might benefit from some of the same treatments as patients with pandas very good and we will be right back at the voice america health and wellness channel thank you to our sponsor Enzymedica. please stay tuned more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. You've read the books, listened to the CDs, and gone to the workshops to learn spirituality. Now there's a way to help you live it every single day. The Spiritual Workout with Stephen Morrison. 
Call with any issue at all and Stephen will passionately help you see which of 15 universally spiritual concepts apply to your circumstance and how. Practice every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Spiritual Workout on 7th Wave Network. It's a practical path to a happier, more peaceful, and richer life experience. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Rosario Tripoletti and Lynn Johnson talking about pandas. And a listener uh, contacted me yesterday wanting to know if pandas can come back, especially in um, an adult, uh, an older child. Uh, well, I, I would say uh, uh, yes. Uh, we think now pandas is, uh, is uh, really a little bit like a- uh, something like asthma. Uh, once you have it, you, you have a tendency towards it for uh, uh, an indefinite period of time, perhaps well into adult life as well. Um, uh, you know, the initial cases were described in people between 3 and 11, so uh, adult cases were uh, initially thought not to be pandas, but... Uh, we now know that they uh, are often people that have had this in the past. Uh, so uh, yeah, the, the answer is yes, you could definitely uh, have uh, a recurrence of pandas later on in life. Now, there's a precedent for this actually with Sydenham's chorea. Uh, if you've had a history of Sydenham's chorea as a child, it's well known that uh, uh, in women, for example, when they get pregnant, as they have a recurrence of that uh, during pregnancy called chorea gravidarum. Uh, so... Um, it's not uncommon that uh, later on in life you get a uh, recurrence of these symptoms. Isn't it really interested how, interesting how medicine can be limited by definitions? Uh, it can't be that. Why? Because it can't be that. Because that's the definition. If it only, if it's said to only occur in a certain age group, then someone's going to dismiss it and not give appropriate treatment. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's a big uh, lesson from autism that, uh, you know, a lot of things that uh, we expected you know, you read about it in a textbook, and it's supposed to look exactly like this. And if you just base your your diagnosis on uh, on what it says in the textbook, you're going to really miss a lot of cases. So that's why you have to really um, think out of the box. And uh, what I try to do is every time I see a patient, I try to say, well, what did what does that patient remind me of? Well, of all the other patients I've seen, can I, in my mind, like relate that to another patient and uh, and uh, and that that's a better way of thinking about it, saying, oh, it does, definitely doesn't fit uh, my predefined criteria. Uh, I obviously, you know, it would be much better if we had objective tests like genetic tests or some other things that would help confirm a diagnosis, uh, so we uh, understand uh, where uh, uh, you know people fall on a spectrum. Uh, you know, we had that problem with ADHD. We don't have an objective test that, or, or attention deficit disorder, really great atten- a test that can show whether a child has that or not. Uh, it makes it uh, difficult to, uh, to to treat it, uh, but um, you know that's what we're always hoping for is some um, you know some objective criteria. Well, I tend to think that um, autism is simply a diagnostic label and not a really useful one at that. And what we're really just looking at is the underlying physiology, whatever's going on in the immune system or neurological system, just like well, everybody well, else. I, I think it's a, you know there's a you know this thing of defeat. You know, you know, saying that cure cancer or cure autism is is really kind of a misnomer. Autism isn't one disease. It's we know there's 150 genes, and there, the challenge is to try to uh, 
sort patients out into subtypes and, uh, and try to understand what's common between them and, and then to, to be able to uh, treat the different groups uh, the best way way we can. And I think the, there will be a uh, uh, probably a, uh, uh, maybe a small, maybe a not-so-small group of patients uh, that have uh, pandas or, or infectious etiologies as uh, post-autoimmune etiologies as part of their, their uh, factors involved, you know. Well, Lynn and Dr. Trifoletti, I know that you wanted to get to back to talking about just how dramatically this can manifest. I know that this can be really difficult for the individual and the family. Well, I just wanted to briefly talk about this exorcist syndrome, uh, and uh, I think we've all heard about the exorcist movie and uh, have that picture of Linda Blair in our mind, uh, writhing, uh, floating uh, in the air, and uh, her head turning around and. Uh, there is a, something that uh, is reminiscent of that, where the a child can suddenly, out of nowhere, get uh, the onset of severe, violent tics, where they can literally put a hole in the wall uh, and have a, uh, a change in their vocal character, type of, of, of falsetto vocal change, uh, where it can either be a, uh, a they can suddenly sound uh, like, for example, Donald Duck, or they may sound like a uh, gruff, demonic voice. Uh, and uh, they uh, can have coprolalia cursing with that, and um, and it will if you wait long enough. Suddenly, you know, can disappear by itself as if it's miraculously cured. And when I saw a few cases of that, immediately, uh, I hate to say it, reminded you of demonic uh, possession. And I wasn't the, you know, it wasn't a thought that just came to me. The parents, I mean, it's sort of some of the same thing that it, it really looked like some the, the child was. Uh, there was another person in this child's body for a period of time that had taken over. And it turned out that a number of these cases, in fact, had uh, pandas, but not only uh, they had the most severe uh, form, but their titers were the highest I'd ever seen. And uh, they didn't respond to the usual uh, psychiatric medications. Most of these patients had been, were so severely affected they had already been to psychiatric hospitals at least once. Uh, and uh, the only treatment for them, it turned out, was uh, potent immunosuppression, and, and with that, they uh, they achieved fairly rapid cures. But uh, it was a, it's a dramatic syndrome, and I, uh, um, you know, when you uh, then uh, you know uh, uh, have a forum for that's uh, nationwide, you see there's quite a, a number of cases of of this, which. Uh, Boy, that can really lead you down um, a wrong path and put a child, uh, you know, in a psychiatric, a long psychiatric hospitalization if it's not uh, recognized. Well, that just more so uh, emphasizes how uh, it is merciful and humane to do appropriate, uh, in-depth biological investigation before writing a child off. Well, Lynn, what can you tell parents about support in the community? Well, the Department of Community is reaching out to other parents who are, are, are going through trying to, you know, di- diagnose a treatment. Um, um, like we said before, this is ever-changing. Um, three years from now, five years from now, you know, there's going to be diagnostic protocol and treatment protocol, and I think that's going to be forever evolving as we learn more about this. This is a relatively new disease or syndrome, as people like to call it. And it, like I said, as we start out with this, it is such a broad spectrum how a child can manifest into this. It's really important. This is changing the face of how we look at mental illness. At some point, a doctor is going to have to check off a box to make sure there's not a physical organic mm-hmm. cause that's causing these children to act this way right. and really treat them effectively, um, you know, be, instead of jumping to um, psychotropic medications, like I said, before they end up being 
um, psychiatric hospitalized over and over and over. I believe Dr. Latimer touched on last week that every time a child gets exposed to a new bacteria, doesn't even have to be strep after the initial onset, you know, it's causing their their body, their brain, you know, it's damaging it further and further mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, it might not be irreversible anymore. We really need to build awareness, and, and awareness not just your typical you know, in the box of what we thought this was, you know, 10 years ago when it was discovered. Not your typical saving Sammy kind of manifestation, even though Beth Maloney's doing a great job with building awareness of pandas. But we have to broaden that spectrum of what we're looking at. And we have to wait for the research to catch up with us that's going to be able to give the doctors the information they need. But in the same time frame, there are sick children out there and they have to be treated effectively. Right, that's a really good point. Um, in the autism community, we have that too, where um, there are naysayers who uh, who speak against biomedical treatments and talk about research for the next 20 or 30 years. Well, the kids who are affected now, who are suffering now, families suffering now, don't have 20 or 30 years to wait. And we know that there are biomedical treatments that can be done safely that have uh, that have increased health and provided relief of symptoms and increased functionality. Dr. Trifoletti, closing remarks, where do you think research should go? Uh, well, I think uh, the research should go towards uh, trying to define uh, uh, what uh, are the uh, triggering agents for the uh, pandas-like syndrome and uh, what are the brain mechanisms that are are, are actually going on uh, that are, are in common to these various triggering agents because uh, th- those are the ways in which we're going to be able to uh, more specifically and selectively uh, approach uh, the problem. I think we're at a stage, uh, a very early stage, where we're still at the, uh, where we're trying still to clinically define this. So there's a lot of still where a uh, data gathering stage where uh, that's very important. Now we have to, uh, and that's where these uh, large forums, I should mention there's one called ACN Latitudes uh, that is very popular um, uh, that uh, people may want to check into that uh, may have uh, thinking that child might have pandas, but uh, this is uh, this is uh, very helpful uh, to that community. Well, thank you, Dr. Trifoletti and Lynn, for sharing your time today, a fascinating discussion. To our listeners, Dr. Trifoletti and Lynn will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2010 conference in Chicago in May, as well as over 150 additional great presenters. Please visit www.autismone.org. Remember to visit the Autism One website and check out the new book from Skyhort Publishing, Cutting Edge Therapies for Autism, available for pre-order from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.